Amen. Well, I love that last song. We're going to actually talk about that song a little bit more as we move along in the sermon. And thank you so much, worship team, for presenting it so beautifully this morning. It's good to hear y'all singing this morning, too. It's uh, good to be here today. Well, we're in Psalm 75, Psalm 75, and it feels like a big week, maybe just for me personally, but I think a bit of an accomplishment. We started back in June of 2015, our Summer in the Psalms series, and I told you when we started that it's going to be about a 15-year series. Uh, There's 150 Psalms, which means we are halfway there today. I started to title this sermon, Halfway There and Living on a Prayer, but I didn't. (laughs) That's not the name. It's not the title of this sermon today, but I did think about it. 15-year series walking through the Psalms. This is the eighth year then, and we'll end off just shy of Psalm 80, so we are, in fact, on target. Let me remind us a little bit of where we are in the Psalms. Some people see the Psalms as a random collection of poems and hymns. I don't think it's random. I think there is an order to the Psalms, and sometimes that's a little bit more discernible than at other times. But you can note in your Bible, if you uh, were with us a few weeks ago, we noted that we are just beginning book three of the Psalter. And so there's five books, and they are uneven in their division, but there are five books. And so these have been collected over a number of years. Some of the Psalms are very, very old. In fact, Psalm 90, which we'll come to uh, a little while from now, was written by Moses. So it's very, very old. Many of the Psalms were written by David, about half, and then we have this collection here along with uh, one other psalm that was written by the sons of Asaph. Um, Asaph was one of the uh, musicians in the temple. He was with David and then also with Solomon, so he sort of saw this transition of power, and then his lineage, his kids, end up writing and being the sort of musicians of the the country of Israel, sort of like the sons of Korah um, as well. And so we have this masterful collection of the psalms. And what we have in book three is really a lot of psalms that are reflecting on why things are so bad. Why is Israel so messed up? And we know that they've been disobedient to the Lord. Injustice has been allowed to run rampant. The word of God has been lost and not followed. There are seasons and periods, if you read through books like First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel even, and then Chronicles, that follows the good kings and bad kings. And if you're making a list, it's a lot more bad than good. The kingdom splits, and really things are in a bit of a mess. And so this third book of the Psalter, I think, is reflecting on that, this time of exile when the Assyrians have come in. They destroyed the temple there in the southern kingdom, which would have been in Jerusalem, and things are a mess. And so what are you going to do? How are you going to respond when everything in the world seems to be falling apart? I tell people all the time that when you look around the world and you think, this is, this is the worst the world has ever been, I say, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go home and read Judges. It, you talk about a mess. Absolute catastrophe. And so yeah, I recognize we got problems in our world. I do recognize that. But I do think it's a little bit dramatic and a little bit of an overstatement to say the world has never seen anything like this terrible place that we live in now. Like, well, actually since the garden, you know, we had murder soon as they left the garden with Adam and Eve's sons. So we, we, we understand that the world is a bit of a mess and it always has been. This psalm, as you, whether you're a new student of the Bible, um, whether you're just picking up uh, a Bible maybe for the first time in a long time or you've been studying the scriptures for a very long time, you'll probably resonate with this. There's some passages that you don't, you have low expectations for, and then it ends up grabbing you and really showing you something that you didn't really expect. 
I have to admit that Psalm 75 sort of did that for me. I knew about 73 and 74, some great psalms and just some, as uh, those of us who preach, there's some good preaching material um, in those. And I thought I was excited about those. 75 seemed a little bit uneventful. Like, what are we going to do with that one? What are we going to say? But as I dug into this psalm, I, I just can't believe how exciting and exhilarating God's word is, and it just keeps refreshing us in his truth and in his word. So I'm very excited to look into this psalm uh, with you today. As we looked at this, I, I think really the idea behind this psalm, and maybe a helpful idea for us today, is this idea of perseverance, persevering, keeping on, keeping on. Just a textbook, dictionary definition of perseverance, continued effort, to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. The Bible actually has a lot to say about perseverance. You'll see other words that are very similar. Endurance, long-suffering, words like that. We won't do a full study of that this morning, but I do think this psalm is instructive for us in persevering, keeping on. It's really easy to start something, isn't it? Any students amongst us this morning? Or maybe you remember those days when you were in school? That, what are we in, students? Second, third week of class now? Maybe fourth? Second, third? Yeah. You start out, you're all organized. You got your little notebook and your tabs and, you know, all your homework. And it's like all pressed and ready and your little book bag or crate or whatever it is you cart around. It looks great. You got your assignments. You got your little to-do list. You're checking things off. About day four, it, it starts to deteriorate a little bit. The system doesn't look quite so clean and neat and nice as it did. And then by the end of the quarter of the semester, you're just hanging on for dear life, hoping to coast in and get a little bit of a break. I know how it goes. I spent way too much of my life in school. Totally understand how that goes. But we do it in other things too, don't we? You start a new fitness plan. You start a new diet. You're like, yeah, I got this. You start a running plan. I'm going to run a half marathon. And then two miles in, you're like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do like a 10K. And then another mile in, you're like, we'll just go with the 5K. Um, oh, okay, never mind. I'm just going to walk. And it, it's hard. It's hard. It, things are hard. And so as the, as the pressure and just the continual crucible of life continues to squeeze on you and squeeze on your time and squeeze on your priorities and things start to pull at your attention and you, you get exhausted, we can do the same thing with things like spiritual disciplines. You start out the new year. This is, this is like a new year's talk, really. You start out the new year. It's like, I'm going to I'm going to memorize Matthew this year. Like, you know, you may just want to pick a verse. Um, Start there and move forward. And we have these lofty goals and ambitions and dreams, and then a lot of times we just don't follow through. I'm I'm not as concerned about that. I think those things could be useful or helpful, the spiritual disciplines, daily Bible reading plan. Those are all useful and helpful. But let me, just, let me just be clear. Jesus doesn't love you more or less because you missed a day this week, all right? Just, just want you to understand that and know that. They're useful insofar as they help us to center our minds and thoughts on Christ. What I'm more concerned about is our faith, our trust in Christ. And that's part of the reason we're here today is to be renewed in our faith, to recommit ourselves to him, our hearts fully to him. So one of the dangers of preaching a sermon like this, or really any sermon uh, in reality, is overcommitting and not delivering. When I talk about 
perseverance, what I really want to do is just give you some help for perseverance. I promise no magic formula today. I know as a young Christian, I was so eager to follow the Lord, and sometimes I would, I would hear a sermon, I, w- I was devouring you know, sermons, I was reading different books, and I felt like I was always waiting on the secret. You may ever felt that way? Like, I'm going to hear that sermon, I'm going to find that verse, I'm going to get this methodology, whatever it is, and it's going to click, and I'm just going to be super saint after that. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Following the Lord is just a slow process. It requires a lot of patience, faithfulness, joyfully walking and following in obedience to Christ. It's just a long process, and that's what it is. So let's walk through this. I want to just give you some help to persevere as we see it in Psalm 75. What's going to help us to move along? Four points, and I think you'll see them in the text pretty clearly. Corporate worship, God's character, godly instruction, and individual worship. All right, let's look at the psalm, and then we'll take some time and explore that. Psalm 75, to the choir master, according to, do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time I will appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants is I, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it, he's pours from it, and the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Help to persevere. One is corporate worship. This psalm is both corporate and individual. You'll notice that in the outline, corporate and then individual at the end. And what I simply mean by corporate worship is when a group of people come together and they worship the Lord together. That's all we mean by corporate worship, corporate as opposed to individual. Some of y'all in the working world, when you hear corporate, you think of the boss man at the office, you know, in the big building. That's not exactly what we mean here. We just mean something as opposed to individual, something that we are doing together. There's progression to how this works. And it begins with this corporate worship. Notice what he says. The verbs are plural. The subjects are plural. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. So three different times we have we. We are doing this. We are doing this. We are doing this. It's not just an I. It's a we. There's something special about coming together and confessing truth together, isn't there? We're studying the Apostles' Creed in our nine o'clock study. And it's been great to go through and see how the Apostles' Creed throughout church history has been used. And these creeds and what's called confessions, I'll use that word a few times today. A confession, it's a, a doctrinal statement, a doctrinal summary. We confess these things together. Most of the time when we hear confession, we're thinking you did something wrong and so you confess, which is true, and that's another sense of the word. But when we talk about confessing truth together, we're just confessing that it's true. We're agreeing that these things are true. Music is one of the great ways that we come together and unify our minds, isn't it? 
I've joked with this, uh, about this many, many times with you before. This is the only place in my life where I sing songs with grown-ups. It's, it's the only place I do it. We don't sing. We're not a singing people. I know in other cultures and other places, there actually are a lot more songs and singing while you work. And, but in our culture, we really don't do that. Our songs, then, are designed to put our minds in the same place. It's just such a good time for us to be able to do that. The song that we just sang, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What a great gospel song for us to confess and agree on this morning. This is helping us in our perseverance to be reminded of the gospel in this way. Before the throne, God is, in fact, the judge, he's the king. I have a strong and perfect plea. It's not about you, it's about Christ. A great high priest, one who stands between me and God, that is Christ. He ever lives and pleads for me, our intercessor. The next line of that song, my name is graven on his hand, my name is written on his heart, may need a little bit more explanation. Um, I know sometimes, if you're like me, you've probably sung hymns, and there's certain lines that go by, and you're like, I'm not sure exactly what I just sang. And so I want to take a second and talk about this one because I think it's really, really important. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. What is that in reference to? It's in reference to the priesthood. So in the Old Testament, the priesthood, there was very specific who could be a priest, the sacrifices they would make, when they could go into the holy place. Their dress was very specific as well. Part of the priestly garments was a breast piece, a breastplate that he would wear. Exodus 28, verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. So this is instructions for the priest. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. So you remember the 12 tribes, 12 sons of Israel. There's 12 stones. They shall be like signets, right? like a marker, a special gem or jewel, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So you have a breast piece with 12 stones and then on each stone, there's the name of a tribe. And so you can picture what's happening. The priest puts this on, brings a sacrifice. He goes to the holy place. And so now Israel is represented to God by the priest. That's what the song means. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. When Christ stands before the Father and pleads your case, he's taking your case to God. That's what we just confess together in song. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. This is what music, these songs that we sing together, is designed to do. Jumping ahead a little bit in the New Testament, we get this idea of corporate worship, singing songs together. Ephesians 5.19 is one of the clearest admonitions in the New Testament. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. <clears throat> now notice there's a triangle going on here. You're singing to God, but you're also singing to others. It's been a little while since I did some artwork for you, so if you're new to Sunrise, I'm kind of famous for this, but so hold on, here we go. This is how it works, all right? God's at the top. Y'all like those musical notes, huh? 
God's at the top, and there's an individual that's singing to God, but he's also addressing one another. He's singing to one another as well. And then you have the congregation who's also singing to God, but singing to one another. You're making melody in your heart to the Lord, but you're also singing with one another. It's both. It's both. This is one of the reasons why here at our church, we like to have the congregation sing. David leads us all the time and says, he says this, or some version of this, the most important sound of the room is the voice of the congregation. We want to see you singing. We want to hear each other singing. That's what we do. We're coming together to confess these truths together. I think it's an important, very important time. The body of Christ is important for us, and corporate worship is a piece of this. It's a corporate confession of what we believe to be true about the gospel. There are a lot of New Testament passages that we could point to that show us the importance of each other in walking together. The psalmist is leading this congregation. We give thanks to you. We give thanks your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds, and we come together also to recount his wondrous deeds. The book of Hebrews is really full of these types of admonitions. Your religion, as we often say, or you hear said at least, is not simply a private matter. What you believe actually matters to me, biblically speaking. It should. It matters to me. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What you believe matters to me. Whether you are keeping faith with the Lord matters to all of us. We are our brother's keepers. That's what we do. That's who we are as a church family. And this is why there's a number of passages in Hebrews that sort of build to this point. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, that day, drawing near. We encourage each other to be amongst God's people, to be stirred up to love and good deeds, to attend, to be a part. This is what we are. This is what we do. Perseverance. Part of the key to persevering is being around other Christians, other believers. I think it's an integral part, understanding this idea of community. Number two, so corporate worship, what's gonna keep us moving along? Corporate worship, next, we need to remember God's character. You'll notice that there's a change of speaker a few times here in this psalm. Verse two, at the set time that I appoint... I will judge with equity. This is God now talking. I'm going to judge when the earth totters and all its inhabitants. It is I who keeps steady its pillars. So God is the one who's going to judge. God is the one who will make all things right. There's really two parts to this. There's a promise that he's going to judge, verses two and three, and then there's a warning to the wicked. Because of that judgment that you know is coming, don't boast. Don't boast. You know, punctuality is an interesting thing in our culture, isn't it? I've lived in a few different places and uh, traveled a, a few, uh, around a little bit. 
And I, I'm always fascinated by this idea of punctuality because some people kind of see it as like the 11th commandment to be on time. And then some people it's like, time is completely subjective experience. It's just whatever you feel, you know, we'll arrive when we get there. And, you know, I can't be constrained by these sorts of things. And everywhere I've been, it seems like there's an adjective in front of the word time. It like island time, beach time, African time, Latin time, California time. You know what all of those mean? Late. That's what they all mean. Like, everyone, that's, that's what they are. I prefer Lombardi time, which some of you will be familiar with. If you're 10 minutes early, you're five minutes late. Let's do this. It is a funny thing, and time is a funny thing, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular as I say this very intentionally. I'm going to look at the ceiling as I talk. Time is a funny thing in our perception of time and being on time. But it's interesting here that in verse 2, God says, at the set time. It's set when God's going to act in history. Completely invisible to us. We may be able to see some things building here and there. There are some signs that Jesus told us to look for, even of his return. But we don't know exactly And Jesus even affirms this in Mark 13. Not even the Son knows the time. God acted in time, on time, when he came the first time. This was Jesus. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That verse is a little bit mysterious to me because from my perspective, there was no wrong time, right? Christ could die any time for me. But in God's wisdom, in the biblical timeline, in the scope of history, there was a time, and God wasn't going to be late for that appointment. It was not going to be rescheduled. This, there's, a, there's quite a few passages that speak of this. Galatians 4.4 is another one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So we can see that the first coming of Christ, it was on a schedule, Now, we're talking from the time of the exile, which we've been talking about. This is happening in the 500s BC, so we're counting down. We're, you know, bumping 600 years later when Christ came, and so now we have this long interval between the first coming and the second coming, but that doesn't mean he's not on track. Peter deals with this in the book of 2 Peter. Some will say, he's not coming back. At that point, it had been 25 years or so. They say, Peter, he's been gone two decades. Get over it, man. He's not coming back. And Peter says, oh, don't count slowness as inactivity. He's coming. He is. He's patient because he doesn't want you to be destroyed. God's patient. So I think as Christians, we can look forward, and history has an, has an arc. It has a, there's a story that's being developed, and God is active in this story, and he will, again, act in time. At the set time, God's going to judge And then he says in verse four, I say to the boastful, do not boast and do the wicked, do not lift up your horn. This idea of horn, this is one of those images that's probably lost on us. Uh, Think of of some of those like bighorn cattle. We saw a bunch of those and we had our trip um, out west this summer. And some of those things are just majestic, these gigantic horns. And they just... They just kind of look a little arrogant when they're standing there, don't they? If you ever think about it, they're just kind of standing there, you know, these horns just going way up. You're like, he's, that guy's full of himself. And, you know, I shouldn't think that. I don't know him. But they do come across a little bit that way. And this is kind of the image and the idea. 
of this, this big, majestic, proud person who thinks he's something, just upright, chest puffed out, his horn is just sticking up for, to catch the sun and for all to see. Like, yeah, what are you going to do? And again, it's an image that's maybe lost on us, but that's the idea. Don't lift up your horn. Don't act that way. Don't be arrogant. God's not slow. He's on time. He's going to do it. He's going to judge. So his promise to judge, it's a warning also to the wicked. Don't boast. Next, godly instruction. What's going to help you to persevere? Being together with other believers, you need that in your life. You need people that you can talk to. You need other people that are confessing the same gospel that you are. That's part of what we do here on Sunday morning. God's character. You need to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. You need to be reminded often. It's not enough just to come here on a Sunday morning and get your dose of God for the week. I hope that this is a daily thing. You're reminding yourself of who God is, of what he's done. Next, godly instruction. Notice here again, there's a change of uh, speaker that's going on. Godly instruction. This is verse 6. Verse uh, 4 on our slide, that should be verse 6. Verse 6, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Now what's going on here? Godly instruction. So we have a change of speaker. God has spoken. He's taken the, the words of God. I'm going to judge. The boastful should not boast. And then the pastor, the preacher, the priest says, yeah, and ain't none of y'all going to get away when he does that. It, that's the response. You're not going to be able to hide. That's the meaning of verse 6. Not from the east, not from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. You're not going to find help anywhere else. When God comes to judge, he will judge. He will, in fact, do it. This is what he's going to do. Godly instruction understanding who God is, making application for us. This is what we try to do each and every week. He promises to judge and letting us know that you're not going to get away with it. I think sometimes we seem so silly. We must, from God's perspective, trying to hide things from God. You ever played hide-and-go-seek with a toddler? That is entertaining, isn't it? Because you usually end up with a picture something like this. And I... I think that's, that's maybe what we look like when we're trying to hide something from God. Like, just, just give up. Um, it's not going to work. That's the psalmist's point. From the east, from the west, it doesn't matter where you go. You're not getting away. So what's the logical thing to do? Submit yourself now to him. Recognize that he is in absolute control. Stop playing games with God. He explains a little bit further. Verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now, what is this all about? This imagery of a cup, it's a cup of wrath, Then this is used a few different times in the Bible. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15 says it this way, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. 
So the wrath of God is symbolized by this cup, and you're gonna have to drink it because the judgment of God is coming down on the arrogant, the boastful. That's the picture. Lastly, corporate worship, being with God's people, God's character, reminding ourselves of who God is, godly instruction, listening to people that are explaining the nature of God, making application for us, biblical teachers, it's so helpful for us, reading good Christian books. Then lastly, individual worship. He started with the corporate and now he changes to the individual. That's what we do together. We are both worshiping corporately, but this is also an individual thing we were doing. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. I'm going to declare it forever. I'm going to do this individually, resolving, declaring God's goodness. It's just a matter of time before they get what they deserve. This is good for us to remember. It's good for us to come together and it's good for us to have really individual recommitment, renewal of our own hearts and lives. As I was thinking about this a little bit more this week, and even in my prayer, you you may have noticed, I, I think sometimes we have this impression we need to come to church so that we can forget everything else and just focus on God. I get what we're saying with that. There's an element of truth to that. But also, we don't come to forget. We come to remember and we come to think rightly about those situations. It's not like you just leave all your situations in the parking lot. You come in with that mess and you learn to think biblically about that mess and what decisions we need to make now. So we come today and it's, it's really every Sunday and every day in reality, but in a special way with God's people under the preaching of God's word, reading God's word together. It's a chance for us to plant our flag, say, yes, we believe the gospel is true. Yes, we believe that the Lord is worth living for. Yes, this is who I am. And to identify yourself anew and again. I'm not saying you're getting saved again, just saying that you're coming and you're remembering. You're remembering who you are and you're remembering who you are in Christ. Our psalm started out talking about the wondrous deeds. Recount these wondrous deeds, remember these wondrous deeds. Then in the middle here, we're reminded that God will judge the wicked. I wanna end with this, just talking about this cup for just a second. I know many of you would probably immediately make the connection with Christ and the cup that he drank. Matthew 26, verse 39, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before the crucifixion event, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, we believe that Jesus drank the cup of wrath because none of us could stand otherwise. He drank this cup. He took the wrath of God on himself so that we don't have to. That is the essence of the gospel message today. John Piper said it this way, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup of God's fellowship to us. It might include suffering, but not wrath. We don't get wrath anymore, now we get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of eternal fellowship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is ours now, not the cup of wrath, but the cup of fellowship from our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to spend some time in your word today. 
And as we've been talking about this idea of perseverance, I am well aware that there are many probably in here this morning who just feel weary. They feel tired, physically tired, maybe even physically, emotionally exhausted. Lord, this idea of perseverance can sometimes seem daunting. But Lord, we understand there is no real secret ingredient, but you give us everything that we need. You give us the resources that we need in Christ. Help us to take advantage of what we have here available for us, the fellowship of believers with God's people, understanding your character and your nature, having the benefit of having those around us and even with the wonder of technology, having people all over the world that can help us understand your word better. And then Lord, help us to renew ourselves today, to remember who we are, to remember that Christ is the one who drank the cup of wrath for us. And in this way, we recount your wondrous deeds. We recount the gospel message again today. Lord, maybe there's some here that don't really understand or have a good uh, knowledge of what's going on here and what we mean when we say gospel. I pray that you would use this text, show them their desperate need for Christ, and show them that, they, that he is the only way for us to avoid this cup of wrath for ourselves. We pray in Christ's name, amen.